We are going through the book of Revelation, and we are at Revelation chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began... And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray together before uh, we get started. Pray with me. Uh, God, we thank you just for this time of worship and uh, what a glorious vision uh, that's here in Revelation 5. And, you know, in some ways, um, uh, I guess a mere person, a mere preacher is uh, really never equipped to uh, try to describe the glories of who you are and the glories of heaven and the worship in heaven. And so we pray, God, that um, more than anything, it would be your Holy Spirit that speaks to us today, uh, not just through our ears, but uh, maybe even through our eyes, and that you would give us sanctified imaginations to uh, be able to see and to hear uh, the glorious worship that takes place in the heavenly places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So, you know, today's sermon, uh, I'm going to try to utilize some technology and uh, incorporate uh, a couple things. But uh, last week, we started looking at a vision where John, he enters into this throne room of heaven. And uh, if you remember from last week in chapter four, I said chapter four sets the stage for the drama that is going to unfold in chapter five. And in the previous chapter, John has his vision of a throne room in heaven, and there are 24 elders, and there's four living creatures, and they are gathered around the throne, and they're singing songs of worship to God, who is seated on the throne. And if you imagine what John is seeing and hearing, then you can just imagine that it must have been pretty loud. Uh, it would have been like hearing a choir singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And you might think what John hears is pretty loud, but things are actually about to get even louder in chapter 5. 
Now, I am intentionally using words like, you know, stage and drama because, uh, you know, in one sense, the Christian faith is really about a story. Uh, there was a book that I read a couple of years ago. Uh, the title of the book was called The Stories We Tell uh, by this guy named Mike Cosper. And in this book, what he does is he basically breaks down different stories in, you know, movies and film. And he suggests that uh, stories, the stories that resonate with us the most, they do so because ultimately they reflect something about the Bible story of redemption. And he says, we tell stories because we are broken creatures. We are hungering for redemption. And these stories give our imaginations a glimmer of hope. And that ultimately reflects our longing for eternity in our hearts. And so he takes these categories from the Bible story of uh, redemption, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And he says all good stories actually follow this storyline. Now, for some reason, one of the ways he tries to illustrate this is through the genre of romantic comedies. And he shows how a lot of rom-coms follow that storyline. And he uses movies like Notting Hill and Knocked Up as, ex as examples, but... I don't really remember those movies, so I'm going to use a different example. Uh, I'm going to use the movie Hitch uh, to reflect the story, the narrative of redemption. Now, in Hitch, Will Smith's character, Hitch is a professional date doctor. And what he does is he coaches other men in the art of wooing women to fall in love with them. And uh, he himself falls for a woman played by Eva Mendez named Sarah, and she works as a gossip columnist. Now, on their first date, uh, all the methods that he coaches and teaches, none of those methods work, and their first date ends up being a disaster. But despite everything that goes wrong, they actually still end up falling for each other. That's creation. Then Sarah finds out Hitch is a date doctor, and she interprets that to mean that he teaches men how to manipulate women, and uh, she's disgusted by that, so she gets very angry with him, wants nothing to do with him, and publishes a very negative expose that ends up destroying Hitch's reputation and career as a date doctor. That's the fall. Hitch is devastated, not only because his own relationship is broken, but because now one of his clients, Albert, played by Kevin James, loses the woman he truly loves named Allegra. And so what Hitch tries to do is save Albert and Allegra's relationship because Albert's a good guy and he genuinely loves Allegra. And while doing so, he comes to this realization that it's not his coaching that made her fall in love with him, but that she loved him for who he actually is. And after this realization, he pursues Sarah to declare his love, only to discover she's in the process of moving. And so, you know, in a dramatic way, he goes so far as to jump on her car and tells her how he feels so that this relationship can be restored. Redemption. Finally, the movie ends with a wedding between Albert and Allegra. And everybody's happy and everybody's dancing. And if you remember, the, I think the end credits, there's like a, a line and everybody's dancing through that line. That's consummation, right? So every good story, uh, this author says, follows that basic structure, right? And so from a theological perspective, the reason these stories resonate with us is because they touch upon something deep within us that reflects our longing for this narrative of redemption. Now, within even different stories, there are specific elements that remind us of the Bible story. So he looks at you know, things like love or things like terror and things like violence or things like heroes. And he connects those specific elements to God's story. And what I want to do, I want to highlight that last part, the part about heroes. And uh, this author breaks it down and he says, you know, heroes take a journey that can be marked by five stages. Uh, they're called away. They're tried and tested. They go into the darkness. Then they come out of the darkness. 
and then they are home again. And he basically says that's, that's the hero story of Jesus as well. Let me share with you a, a chart from his book, right? And uh, <clears throat> he looks at different various heroes from different stories. So you have Katniss in The Hunger Games. She's called away when she volunteers as tribute in the place of Prim. She's tried and tested, fights for her life in the Hunger Games. She goes into the darkness. She prepares to commit suicide and deny the Game Masters their champion. She comes out of darkness, right? Game Masters change the rules and Katniss and Preta live. And then she's home again. She returns to society as a symbol of rebellion and hope. And, you know, he does it with uh, Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter. And of course, it's, he says it follows the narrative, the hero story of Jesus, who's called away through his incarnation, tested in temptation in Gethsemane, into darkness on the cross, out of darkness through resurrection, and home again through his ascension. And if you think about just all stories and heroes, and it, you know, it could be like Superman or Batman or Wonder Woman or Iron Man, but not even like those kind of superheroes, but even in non-superhero movies, um, it follows that basic storyline. You know, Jen and I, we just watched on Netflix, Queen's Gambit, and I won't tell you too much about that show because it's kind of a new show and I don't want to spoil it for you. But uh, I was thinking about the main character in that show who is this brilliant chess player and her narrative arc follows that as well, right? Now there are probably film schools and creative writing programs that teach theories about what makes for a good story. And as original and independent artists uh, want to be, uh, I think for the most part, these programs will probably talk about what makes for a good story. There's, a, a, I guess, a universal quality to what makes for good story or compelling characters. And again, a theological interpretation for why some of these things make for a good story or why uh, these are heroes that we resonate with is because we are created in God's image and we live in a world that has been corrupted by sin. And when there is something in these stories that reflect the greatest story, God's story, we find ourselves connecting to it. If you think about the book of Revelation from, uh, I guess, a literary perspective, it does make for a very compelling story. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I don't know this, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was actually inspired by the book of Revelation when he wrote that story. Because the book of Revelation could easily be called The Lion, the Dragon, and the Heavenly Place, right? That's, that's part of the beauty of Revelation and why even children should be able to understand this book. Uh, the visions present us with this compelling story of redemption and Revelation 4 to 5, I think, gives us an outline for understanding the chapters that are to follow. Now, chapter 5, it starts with John, and he sees a scroll in the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. And in the past, um, you know, important letters, they were, they were sealed with melted wax, uh, not only to keep it closed, but to make sure that the proper person opened this letter. And this scroll, what it has is seven seals. So what you're imagining in your mind is like the scroll that's rolled up. And boom, 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 right? Seven wax seals along the edges that basically keep this scroll closed. And, you know, basically in the next vision in the following chapters, that scene unfolds in more detail with the opening of the seals one by one. But um, if you look at this, what does the, the scroll ultimately represent? It represents the entirety of God's plan. And this plan has aspects of both judgment and blessing, but I would actually say the emphasis is probably on judgment. The reason I say that is because the scroll imagery is taken from places like Ezekiel 2 and Daniel 7, which are passages about judgment. So, for example, in Daniel 7.10, it says the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And in Ezekiel 2.10, it identifies that the writing on the scroll were words of lamentation and mourning and woe. 
And these suggest that the content of the book or the scroll is primarily about judgment. Now, you might notice that some of those passages say book instead of scroll, like in Daniel, but uh, you should also know that in the Greek, the word translated as scroll here can also be translated as book. It's actually the same word. It's the word biblion, which is where we get the word Bible. So the difference in translation shouldn't throw you off. And basically what I'm saying here is, at least from the perspective of the Old Testament, the, the scroll is about God's plan of judgment. Now, I think that's one of the reasons why some people may find the book of Revelation uh, a little bit uncomfortable and maybe undesirable to read. Uh, maybe that's why some people even find it scary. People don't want to read about God coming in judgment, judging the world because it's not pleasant to think about. But I would suggest that maybe our discomfort with it may be shaped uh, more by our Western culture because, you know, other cultures who have experienced oppression and injustice would have been encouraged by reading about God's judgment. And that's actually the context of the recipients of this book. They are believers who are being persecuted. And when it refers to the prayers of the saints in verse 8, it's referring to prayers that cried out for God to bring judgment upon all evil, for God to bring judgment upon all evildoers. And so what this scroll represents is God's plan. Is there blessing? Of course there's blessing, but that blessing would come uh, by way of judgment. Now the drama forms around the scroll when this mighty angel proclaims in a loud voice and says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then you know what John hears? Right? That's what he hears, nothing. <laughs> he hears silence. Verse 3 says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll or to look into it. You know, silence uh, can actually draw out some powerful emotions. And uh, even when there's nothing wrong, silence has a way of making us feel uncomfortable. Uh, personally, I, I don't mind awkward silences, but I know a lot of people uh, hate it. So they fill the room with chatter or noise or music. Uh, and uh, the purpose of it is basically just to simply block out silence. You know, filmmakers know the power of silence and they employ it to convey the heaviness of the moment. Uh, Martin Scorsese films, uh, he's, he's known to use silence. This example is a little bit dated, but yeah, because it's from 1978. But you remember the, the original Superman movie, the, the first one with Christopher Reeves, if you've seen it? You know, there is a scene where Lois Lane is in the car and an earthquake happens and then she gets buried in the car and ultimately she dies. And Superman, he's flying and he arrives too late and he's unable to save her. If you watch that scene, and I'm sure you could pull it up on YouTube, you know, what's amazing about that scene is that entire scene is silent, right? There's no background music. Uh, and because of that, I think you just kind of feel that heaviness of the moment and you think to yourself as an audience member, whoa, I can't believe it. There is no way that Jane just died, right? The silence of that scene is what gets across the heaviness of the moment. After the angel's question about who is worthy to open the scroll, it goes unanswered, right? kind of followed by silence. John begins to weep. He weeps loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Now, by the way, isn't that the theme of uh, Sword of the Stone or Thor with his hammer? Uh, the one who can take the sword out of the stone or lift the mighty hammer is not the one who necessarily has the greatest ability or strength or skill, but it's ultimately the one who is found worthy. Worthiness is a matter of the quality of a person rather than the abilities of a person. And when the angel asks who is worthy to open the scroll, the silence is so heavy that John begins to weep. 
Now, why does John weep? Because if no one is found worthy to open the scroll, then God's plan will not come to pass. If God's plan does not come to pass, then there is no hope. There is no hope for justice, for redemption, for life, for meaning, for salvation, no hope for blessing. There's only sadness. There's only injustice, pain, death, sin, destruction. You see, John knows what is at stake in this scroll, and he feels the deep pain within his soul when for a moment it seems as though nobody is worthy to open the scroll. Now, I want to set something up for a minute. All right. Now, after that silence, he hears one of the elders say, weep no more, right? weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And, uh, you know, after that silence and after this time of weeping and, oh, what's going to happen? Who's going to open the scroll? All of a sudden, that elder's voice has to be like uh, the sweetest sound saying, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And, you know, that's the kind of hero's announcement that gives you, uh, gives you goosebumps. And uh, I, I don't think it comes through when I, I just say it. And maybe we need some music to, to kind of emphasize it. So let me add some music. This, right? Uh, who can open the scroll? Who's worthy to open the scroll? Silence. Then all of a sudden you hear an elder, right? And the elder's about to say something. Can you feel it? Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Uh, did that help? <laughs> right? You feel it, like the kind of drama, right? The announcement that the hero is about to come and the hero is the one who can open the seven seals. Now that kind of music, that Superman music is appropriate for the Lion of Judah because the imagery of a lion conveys strength and victory. The lion is the one who has conquered. The lion is the one who comes in victory and he has proven to be worthy. The lion is the one who will open the scroll. But you see, in Superman, you'd expect Superman to fly in and beat all the bad guys with his strength and his might, and you know, he's invincible. But that's not actually how the story of Jesus goes. Because even though John hears of the lion from the elders, he actually sees something very different. Does he You know what he sees? He sees a lamb. He sees a lamb standing as though it had been... As one commentator puts it, what he hears is strength. What he sees is weakness. What he hears is a conqueror. What he sees is the quintessential victim, the lamb. Lions and lambs are very different creatures, very different animals. Lions devour their, their prey, but lambs are devoured as prey. You know, you can bring your children to pet a lamb, but you don't bring your children to pet a lion because lambs are safe, lions are not right? You see the contrast, and yet John hears, what John hears and what John sees 
It's this paradox. The same person who is worthy is both the lion and the lamb. And that person is Jesus. Now, Jesus is able to open the scroll as the lion and the lamb. And the reason he's able to actually open the scroll is because he's, he's both. He is the one who is worthy of executing God's plan. Yes, he would be like the lion coming with full power to conquer and overcome. And yet, the way he would conquer and overcome is by becoming the slain lamb on the cross. You see, it was uh, gain through loss. It was uh, victory through loss. It was salvation through death. And even though Jesus is the slain lamb, the vision doesn't communicate a weak. In this vision, the lamb who has been slain, he is actually alive. And he is standing between the throne and the four living creatures, which signals that the lamb has been raised and resurrected. And now he is seated at the right hand of God. And not only that, but this slain lamb has seven horns and horns represents power and strength. But he also has seven eyes, which it says, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And the seven spirits of God are a reference to the fullness of the spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. And so the lamb, after the lamb was slain, he was resurrected. He sends out his Holy Spirit into all the earth to carry and to execute God's sovereign plan of redemption. Who is worthy? Jesus is worthy. The lion and the lamb is worthy to open up the scroll. Now, Jesus being both lion and lamb is a paradox. Uh, the British journalist G.K. Chesterton, uh, he has this famous chapter on paradox in his book, Orthodoxy, uh, that people quote all the time. You know, Chesterton himself, he, he was an atheist, and he said one of the things that brought him to see the truth of Christianity was the, the reality of paradox. Um, but he, you know, he also recognized that paradox is what makes people stumble. So, uh, you know, Larry King just passed away um, yesterday, and I, hold, I heard an old interview uh, from him uh, that he, he started talking about God, and he said, you know, he grew up in a Jewish household, and uh, he said eventually he just came to a point where he couldn't believe in God because he said God seems so contradictory. You know, on the one hand, and he's talking from, I guess, his Jewish upbringing, the God of me, he says, on the one hand, you know, God smites all these people, and yet on the other hand, he commands his people to love. And he says, how can God do both? How can God simultaneously smite people and yet command love? And to him, he sees that as a contradiction. But G.K. Chesterton would call that a paradox. And so what he does in this chapter, he points out you know, some of the critiques that people have made of Christianity only to find that uh, the, critique, the critiques themselves were uh, inconsistent. And so people would criticize Christianity for being too optimistic. And then people would criticize Christianity for being too pessimistic. They would say uh, it's too meek. Uh, but then at the same time, they would say it's too fierce. It's too passive or it's too active. And he heard these uh, criticisms and he said, you know, these criticisms are really inconsistent with one another. And that's actually what led him to uh, this, um, I guess, conception of paradox. You see, paradox is at the heart of Christianity, and you see it everywhere in the Bible. You see it in the Beatitudes, which we just went over. Blessed is the poor one. The one who is comforted is the one who mourns. The way to experience rest is by taking upon Jesus's yoke. The way towards wealth is actually by way of generosity. Weakness is power. Folly is wisdom. The gospel message itself is an announcement of 
both mercy and judgment, life and destruction. In order to gain your life, you must lose it. You see, and when we embrace paradox, we can embrace Jesus, who himself is also a paradox in that he is both the lion and the lamb. Now, what does a paradox do? Um, I think on a spiritual level, it actually invites us into mystery. And if you read the Apostle Paul, you'll notice that he uses the word mystery quite a bit when he talks about uh, the Christian faith, when he talks about the gospel. Now, the pre-modern world seemed to embrace mystery much better than we do. Uh, I think the modern world is a little bit uncomfortable with mystery, but mystery is worth embracing because that's actually what leads us to a place of awe and wonder, which is what I would argue we desperately need living in a secular age and something um, that we lack. Now, there was an article in The Atlantic that came out a couple years ago. Uh, it wasn't so much an article as a, a summary, uh, a short summary of a collection of psychological studies uh, that were focused on this topic of awe and wonder. And if you want to look it up in The Atlantic, it was called Awesomeness is Everything. And what these studies show, and you know, these aren't Christian studies, these are like psychological studies from psychological scholars, but what these studies show is that the experience of awe uh, is actually really important for all sorts of psychological and behavioral reasons. So for example, one study would show that experiences of awe and wonder, it shrinks our egos, which actually makes people feel a greater sense of oneness with others, of connectedness with others. Another study showed that awe makes people more generous because it shrinks the notion of self. Another study showed that awe made time feel more abundant to people. And, uh, you know, I just bought a book where the author tries to tie the, the rise of depression and the changing conceptions of time in the modern world, but all actually makes you feel like you have more time. Now, there were all these fascinating studies about the benefits of experiencing awe and wonder, but these things should probably be obvious for the Christian. Because of all people, Christians should know that experiencing the presence of God has the power to form our hearts, to change our perspective, to give us peace, to direct us away from ourselves. Of all people, Christians should know that experiencing awe in the presence of God has the power to transform us from the inside out. Why? Because Christians are routinely invited to come into the presence of God in God's throne room through worship. And that leads to this final scene in the story. After the slain lamb takes the scroll, choruses start to break out. Singing starts to break out. The first song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And John looks around, and now you have these four living creatures, the elders, the voices of thousands and thousands of angels. And what are they singing? Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then the singing gets even louder. Added to that chorus of singing is a song from every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And every time we get to participate in worship on Sundays, we are actually invited to that heavenly throne room scene to, to sing and to worship with uh, all of the heavenly creatures, with all of the saints, with all of creation 
in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You know, in chapter four, there was already a lot of singing. In this chapter, it's as if the chorus of singing continues to expand and expand and expand, and there's more voices and more voices and more voices singing songs to this Lamb. Now, <clears throat> look, in my opinion, uh, worship over Zoom, virtual worship, is not the same as gathering together and singing together and hearing everyone's voices. Uh, I, I do want to continue to remind you of that because, um, you know, we're probably going to get used to meeting virtually, but there will be a time where we will gather again in person and sing together in person. And I want you to be able to long for that moment where we can gather in person and sing together and worship. You know, I can't wait till that happens. The more voices we hear, the more it reflects the sounds of heaven. But even if we actually had a stadium full of worshipers, right? Think about a full stadium of worshipers. It would still only be a small taste of what we will experience in heaven. You know, it's like a, a parched man in a desert who's desperate for even a few drops of water. And even a few drops will sustain this man uh, of life. Uh, the spiritual battle is intense and our hearts are prone to wander towards lifeless idols. But even a few drops of heavenly worship that we get to taste here on earth is something that we desperately need to be sustained of spiritual life. We need it to be reminded of the worthiness of the Lamb in order to resist the temptation of idols that we face uh, each and every day. Now, I, uh, I'm going to conclude by saying this. Um, you know, as we get ready to, to respond in song, but, you know, sometimes the text in the Bible, uh, it might require us to reflect on something or to meditate or to even pray. But I actually think this text calls us to, to sing and to worship. And so I'm going to say and encourage you, uh, let's sing. And in that singing, hope that God, pray that God gives us a taste of what we read about in Revelation 4 and 5, gives us a taste of heavenly worship. And as we respond in song, uh, here's what I want you to do. Uh, do whatever you need that will get you into a worshipful mindset, okay? Do whatever you need. Uh, if that means uh, you wanna turn off your video, turn off your video. Uh, if that means close your eyes, then close your eyes. If that means, you know, raise the volume as loud as you can, then do it, right? And as you do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture this vision in your mind. Think of the heavenly throne room where God is seated upon his throne. Think of these uh, four living creatures and the 24 elders and the thousands and thousands of angels and every creature in heaven and, and on earth and under the earth and in the sea singing, worthy, right? Worthy are you. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And uh, let's join in their chorus of singing. And I hope as we do, God would give us a taste of what we can expect um, in the heavenly places. Let me pray. And then uh, Peter and Eunice can lead us in song. Uh, God, we thank you for who you are. And uh, if only we could... Uh, get a glimpse of your glory, of your splendor. And we know by faith that this is something that awaits us. We know by faith that this is something that we will experience because of the slain lamb. 
because Jesus is the one who opened the scroll, because we have been uh, brought into the story of redemption so that redemption can now be our own. And yet, um, you know that we struggle. We struggle in our sin. We struggle in our faith. We struggle with unbelief. We struggle in, um, in believing that you are worthy. Uh, we struggle in being drawn to these other kinds of idols. We, dr- we struggle with um, having this inflated view of ourselves and our own desires and our seemingly inability to uh, ward off these desires. Uh, but God, we know that at least um, deep down, the spiritual uh, solution is to, to know more of you, to experience you, to come into your presence, to see your throne room, to see how glorious you are, to come to a place of awe and wonder. And uh, in some ways, it's, um, you know, it's like 10 times as hard to do that from our homes um, over uh, Zoom. Um, so we ask that you would show us more favor and more grace. And as we sing in worship, um, Give us a taste, give us a glimpse of of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.